0: So I, I have really kind of reverted back to daiquiris. I mean, for one thing, I just love them, love, love, love them. Uh, but also, it's it does require at least, you know, that glimpse of attention to it uh, to keep the balance there. And it also gives you a little bit of insight into the bartender's personality in some ways, or the bar's personality in some ways. Open up
1: the champagne. Hello, and welcome to The Scourge, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal. Are you interested in exciting wine adventures? Looking to learn more, taste more, and love more? Check out my website, vinetrainings.com, that's vine with a V, and let's talk about making your next wine experience extra special. Joining me on the show today is Paul Clark, executive editor of Imbibe Magazine, to talk about cocktail culture the whiskey boom, and lots more. We'll get to all that in a minute, but first, a thought. What defines a craft distillery? Is it size, ethos, profitability, or lack thereof? I ask, because as more and more distilleries open up nationwide, the catch-all phrase craft distillery doesn't really tell us much. After all, there are plenty of great distilleries that don't necessarily make a ton of spirit, but are generally not considered craft just because they happen to open a century or more ago. On the flip side, some new distilleries have used the craft designation to bolster sales long past the point where that term was meaningful. Look at the lawsuit against Tito's Vodka for an example. As the market becomes ever more saturated with so-called craft spirits, it's important to maintain perspective. Just because something is small batch doesn't make it good, and just because something is made in large quantities doesn't make it bad. Local products are good in the abstract, but to me, quality is what matters most. The sad truth is, many of the distilleries that have opened in the last decade won't be around in another one. There's bound to be some consolidation and contraction. And while there will always be unique and interesting craft spirits, I'm not sure it'll ever be all that easy to decide what a craft distillery really is. Joining me on Discord is Paul Clark, the executive editor for Imbibe Magazine. Paul, thanks so much for joining me.
0: I'm glad to be here.
1: So it's a, kind of a gray, rainy winter day in Seattle, which is uh, not exactly uh, a surprise to anyone. Uh, what's uh, What's your favorite drink on a day like today?
0: You know, on a day like today, when it is really just kind of drizzly and dreary outside... Um, you got to go old 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 school to something simple like an old-fashioned you know mm-hmm. just it's it's robust it's strong uh, it's simple and it's it's li- it's liquid comfort food.
1: <laughs> absolutely yeah so that's actually a really good uh, question because I feel like the old-fashioned is one of those drinks that uh, can spark an almost infinite number of debates about how it should best be made so uh when you uh when you make one at home or when you go to a bar and you ask someone to make you one what's your what's your preferred method for uh for For making an old fashioned,
0: you know, my my preferred method is as simple as possible. Just a little bit of sugar, simple syrup, uh, a couple of dashes of bitters. You know, of course, Angostura traditional, but if you want to go in a different direction, uh, that's that's certainly uh, fair game. Uh, and then I'm, I'm really a bourbon person for my old fashioned. I like that kind of sweetness, that softness to it. And again, you know, it's kind of playing with that comfort food aspect, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, in a bar, you really get to see the different kinds of approaches that, that bartenders take to it. You know, whether, uh, you know, do they use a lemon twist, do they use an orange twist on it, are they using rye whiskey or bourbon, uh, or if you go to a place where it's more appropriate to have a rye old fashioned, a brandy old fashioned, those are absolutely fair as well. Um. So I, I have my own ways of making it uh, making them at home, but I do like to see the different ways that the bartenders approach it.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a little bit more I lean a little bit more on the rye side of things just because I tend to feel like uh, it's a little bit dangerous with bourbon, depending especially if I'm not the one making it. I feel like uh, you know sort of the sweet element can get a little out of balance quickly, um, but. But yeah, the brandy old fashioned is I think an excellent cocktail, and, and unfortunately, or well, what not? Fortunately, unfortunately, just weirdly, whenever I order one, someone's always like, "Are you from Wisconsin?" Um, which I understand is yeah. sort of a little bit more the uh, the norm there. But it is funny. I'm like, I, I can be from Seattle and like burp, and like brandy. It's okay. It's not like only a upper Midwest spirit for for <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, brandy old fashioned has been something I've, I've been going to uh, really since the holidays, mm-hmm. um, and you know, especially with with a really nice uh, armagnac mm-hmm. uh, or a good cognac, you know, something that's a little bit on the drier side, so that it doesn't get too flabby. Uh, it's just gorgeous in a glass. Yeah.
1: So, how did you first get interested in uh, cocktails and spirits? What uh, What was the trajectory like for you from uh, from childhood to uh, to getting to the point where we are now?
0: Yeah, you know, I really, for the longest time, I didn't have much interest. And I I always thought it was me, you know. Um, I would try to make a martini at home and make it the way that you'd see, you know, in a movie or something, just kind of waving the bottle of really bad vermouth over a shaker and putting in a ton of gin. Uh, And I couldn't figure out why I didn't like the drink. I thought, well, maybe I'm just not a martini drinker. I'm just not a cocktail drinker. and So really, it wasn't until I was in my uh, early 30s that I came around to them. Um, you know, tasked at a dinner party with uh, with putting together a drink, uh, mixed up something, and that kind of uh, you know the light from above came down. Uh, it seemed like uh, it was it was delicious, it was enjoyable, it wasn't too uh, too arduous of a process, uh, and it made everybody happy. So um, the cocktail, you know, from that point became this object of fascination, and uh, from there it, it just kind of built. You know, it, as I've been working as a writer for years. Uh, already at that time and and the cocktail is is custom made with stories you know you you can't make something in a bar room and not have a story come attached to it Uh, so it seemed kind of perfect from that that perspective as well.
1: Yeah. And I mean, not only do the are the cocktails and the ingredients themselves full of stories and even the people making them, but but there's also this great, obviously, um, kind of link between um, writing and cocktails. You know, I mean, to some extent, maybe that's true with other forms of uh, alcoholic beverages, but, you know, whether it's Hemingway and um, all the various stories of what he drank and, of course, the cocktails named after him and, you know, all the expats. And it's just like this great, rich. Uh, sort of there's a there's a a literary quality to cocktails that might also be there to some extent with wine but it's very very different it's a little more uh that's maybe a little bit more I don't know florid poetry and and uh and cocktails are a little more kind of uh you know film noir or something
0: yeah you know cocktails do have such a rich uh history in in literature and and in journalism uh and the stories that go along with them Tend to be uh, a lot more fun, a little bit more carefree, sometimes a little bit more dangerous. Uh, and, and that's kind of, you know, the opposite of what you find in a lot of wine writing. And when I was going into it at the time, I, you know, I, I thought I had toyed with the idea of, of wine writing. I thought, you know, there's so many wine writers and a lot of wine writing just so dry. Cocktails seem to offer uh, both something that's a little bit more fun to play with, uh, but also an opportunity to, to really have fun with the language and really kind of enjoy the stories and. And have fun telling
1: them. Yeah, it's true. There's no, there's no comparable, well, maybe besides a few specific things, but there's not really the same sort of um, endless swirling of a glass and sort of the, if, like, kind of attempt to almost be overly evocative um, with that there is with, or it's not like that with cocktails, I feel like, in the same way that, that it is with wine, in, in a way that, like, cocktails are, meant to be drank and kind of meant to be drank, not exactly quickly necessarily, but, you know, you don't linger over them for hours for the most part. And, and it does sort of create that more convivial atmosphere, I think.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's cocktails are something that, that you enjoy, uh, either, you know, when, when it's getting laid out or right after work, when you're really trying to shift gears. Uh, so it's kind of built for those moments, uh, where you're, you're, you're entirely focused on enjoying yourself you know wine is wine wine goes with food and i love wine you know nothing against wine Uh, but wine goes with food and those kinds of longer conversations whereas cocktails are much more geared to um, those quick short moments and and those moments that uh, decide you know do do i go home this evening and watch netflix or do i go out and come out and come back at dawn
1: (laughs) yeah i can imagine there's been a few of those nights in both of our pasts absolutely <laughs> so so you have you know having been in the in the cocktail and, and spirits uh in, in sort of involved in that scene for quite a while now obviously the landscape has changed dramatically in in the u.s over that period of time um and that's a story that's been certainly well told and i don't necessarily feel like it needs to be repeated in in total but i but i'm curious um I, it's always been my sort of contention or, or belief I guess I haven't really argued about with it about it with people but but that the the growth of cocktail culture was really an outspring of this sort of broader um, culture of, like a food renaissance or maybe naissance because i don't think it ever had happened before in america and that this people suddenly were thinking much more about everything that they were putting in the in their body whether it was um, the food they were eating at a restaurant or or the cocktail they were consuming at a bar at home or whatever and and do you i mean what do you trace that origin to what's what was the the impetus initially for this sort of rediscovery of craft cocktails
0: well, you know, I, I think we rediscovered we re- rediscovered flavor. Um, I mean, you know, it, it first happened with food in the in the late years of the 20th century, and beer was certainly along with that. You know, when uh, back at the time when the when your main options on the beer shelf were um, from Anheuser Busch or from Coors, and uh, you just didn't have a lot of variety in terms of the kinds of beer, when those first um, you know American craft beers started flowing. They were so dynamic and so different from everything else there. And they tasted so uh, much more, more of everything. And I think that just kind of turned on the light for a lot of people between what was going on in food and this kind of culinary renaissance that you referenced, uh, what was going on in wine as well. You know, winemakers in uh, California and Washington and Oregon really starting to hit their stride. And so the cocktail just kind of goes right along with that. It's it's one more of those culinary stories that comes down to uh, people learning how to taste things and seeking things that taste interesting that have a story to them, uh, and then do have some kind of perspective where you can look at it and really kind of take it apart and understand what it is that you're putting in your body.
1: Yeah, and so along with that, you know, you've been with uh, Imbibe since it launched, um, I think, right? That's uh, that's at least what my my sense of it was. Uh, to what extent has the the storytelling side of it? Changed? changed is is the you know is the was it a decade plus ago more about like here are like this is gin (laughs) welcome to gin people and now it's a little bit it feels a little bit more like it's always harder and harder to find something that that a lot of the audience isn't familiar with like what's that what's that been like
0: yeah absolutely i mean you know when, when when imbibe magazine launched in 2006 um, I, I came in with issue number one uh, as a writer, and uh, certainly a lot of the work for those first few years and, and all through you know, the first decade of the, uh, of the 21st century was explaining things to people. You know, what, what is rye whiskey? You've know, you heard about it in you know, Don McLean song, but what is it actually? What does it actually taste like? Why, you sh- why should you even be interested in it? And it was just one step after another, explaining things to people. Explaining different cocktails to people, why it really is okay to put vermouth in your martini, why you really don't want to shake your Manhattan, uh, and, and going through all of that. And then last year, uh, Imbibe celebrated its 10th anniversary. And at, that, at the time that that happened, we had a conversation amongst ourselves at the magazine and said, you know, we, we really kind of have license to, to, to go in a different direction now. We spent our first decade reintroducing people to things like gin and rye whiskey and and, um, basic cocktails. Now that people do have this familiarity with it and we don't have to go back over those basics quite as much, we can kind of look at some of the larger stories, look at more of the cultural aspects. Look at more of the people that are involved in this uh, and really kind of celebrate that and and look at the parts of our culture that are tied up with drinks. Um, So you're right. You know, we don't have to to explain to people what gin is anymore, although, you know, sometimes you still need a refresher course. Uh, But it's it's really been kind of, um, uh, I don't know, it's freed us up to really kind of pursue wonderful stories uh, that are out there as they relate to drinks.
1: Yeah, as that sort of frontier of knowledge continues to move further out, um, have you been surprised at, at things that have really caught on in the culture, uh, whether it's uh, cocktails, specific cocktails or um, ingredients or things? I, I feel like, you know, I've been sort of surprised um, at the way in which uh, agave spirits. God, I was like trying to get the words out. So right, the, the right. growth in like agave spirits that are not just tequila, but obviously mezcal and sotol and those things like what, what are the few things that have really caught on that have sort of surprised you?
0: Yeah, you know, Mezcal was a real sleeper for so long. You know, I remember first hearing about it, um, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And the options that were, that were available in the U.S. were still pretty limited. I think um, uh, Ron Cooper had started bringing in his uh, Delma Gay Mezcals, but it was still, you know, no, nobody had heard of it yet. It was it was still just kind of trickling in just a little bit. Um, so Mezcal was still like that scary stuff that, you know, you had on vacation in Mexico and then had the worm in it when you went to the liquor store, um, to see it kind of, you know, take its reputation back and, and reclaim its heritage and really become uh, that, you know, like a destination drink among the bar industry. Uh, that was surprising. You know, I thought it would pick up along with everything else. I didn't think it would be anywhere near as big uh, as it is now. I think Japanese whiskey was another one that, you know, Japanese whiskey had been in the U.S. market for years, and nobody really cared much about it. Uh, And then all of a sudden it seemed like you flipped the light switch and everybody was just gaga uh, over uh, Yamazaki and and, uh, the different whiskeys from Suntory and from Nika coming in and really kind of enjoying and appreciating uh, what what the Japanese distillers were doing. I think we kind of go step by step. You know, we've gone through most of the kinds of spirits and most of the kinds of fortified wines that were mysteries to us. We've, those are now available. We don't have to go through that process of discovery as much anymore. But now I think we're kind of refining our understanding of what these are. Uh, take vermouth, for, for example. You know, I, I wrote my first article about vermouth probably 12 years ago, uh, and we're still seeing You know, the vermouth is making a comeback, these kinds of stories. And vermouth has made a comeback. It's back now. We have really decent, really high-quality expressions out there. We're at the point now where we're not so much rediscovering it, but rediscovering what it can be, Uh, looking at the different styles, the different approaches to it, and appreciating that kind of variety in it and knowing how to use them in in cocktails. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, that's where the big – Uh, The big sort of fascinating thing to me is is really figuring out, you know, all these uh, ingredients, these spirits and fortified wines and whatnot that um, for so long were were marginalized, even in craft cocktail culture, because, frankly, the ones that were readily available in a lot of U.S. markets were kind of bad or at best kind of not very interesting. And as you see, obviously, a growth of you know more and more stuff being imported as well as more and more stuff being made locally, it does really open the door to be like, well, there's probably a reason why people used to make their gin, their martinis with a whole lot of vermouth. And it's not just because vermouth was cheaper. Uh, it's like, you know, there's a probably there's a lot of flavor to be found there that complements but is distinct from the flavor in gin. Um, so, so sort of on that on that um, line of thought. With with the distilling um, side of it, the craft distilling side of it here in the U.S., obviously, I think you know we've all seen maybe more craft vodkas than we need to see a, uh, in our lifetimes. Obviously, more and more craft whiskey, um, some of which has gotten to the point where it's it's pretty darn good because it's had enough time to actually age. Um, so, but but I think you know the, the fascinating thing is you see this kind of real diversity of. Uh, craft spirits being made in the U.S. What do you see on that end of it, and, and where do you see that industry continuing to go?
0: Yeah, you know, I think the diversity is the key word because, um, you know, we, we have passed. We, we have either just passed or we're just now passing uh, the four-digit mark when it comes to craft distillers in the United States. We now have around 1,000 and growing rapidly. Um, the market, I don't care which market it is, no market in the United States can bear 1,000 craft vodkas or 1,000 craft gems. Um, that's just not going to happen. And especially when a lot of the craft spirits um, are at a price point that's higher than some of the larger, more mainstream things, it's going to be really difficult uh, for your craft gin or your craft vodka to to make a place. So I think diversity is going to be where we see craft distillers really kind of planting their flag. It can be with a familiar spirit like whiskey, but just approaching it in a different way. For example, right here in Seattle, Westland Distilling, went a really interesting direction when they came out only doing American single malt and doing it with a very kind of Northwest touch, whether it's using uh, Oregon wood uh, for their special releases, for, their, for making barrels for maturation, or using Washington-grown uh, grown peat, uh to, to smoke their barley. You know, it's really going in a different direction and looking at different kinds of barley styles, um, introducing things on the market that, that don't already exist. Or it can be distillers uh, going in uh, more interesting directions with the types of spirits they make. About a year ago, I was in California judging spirits for the American Distilling Institute uh, for their annual competition. And some of the most interesting spirits that came across my table were American-made huh. Um You know, it's always something that, that's, you know, from, from Norway, from Sweden, from, from Scandinavia. But American distillers were making some beautiful, beautiful expressions of aquavit. Um, True, I mean, Akavit is never going to be, you know, the next vodka. But still, these were some fascinating spirits, and and I can see them kind of carving out a little part of their local market uh, where you get a few items like that and you have a business that works. Mm -hmm. So seeing that kind of diversity, that kind of uh, exploration, whether it's with a familiar spirit like whiskey or or rum, uh, or with a little bit more of an offbeat spirit like Akavit, or with, you know, going down some kind of liqueur rabbit hole, um, that's that's the direction I think that uh, craft distilling is going to go.
1: Yeah, and I'd be really interested to see as there's more, if there is more interplay. Um, there's little I've seen little bits of it, and you probably have more exposure than I do. But but uh, interplay between sort of the distilling and mostly winemaking side of things, you know, things like um, grappa, mark, and those kinds of uh, you know, spirits that you see in Europe, where you know the the winemakers and, and people in those areas don't really see the point in wasting uh, anything. And so if you can redistill the must and make a spirit out of that, that's even better. Um, you know, I think there's, yeah, there's lots of places that people can sort of fit in as a distillery that yeah, isn't just, here's my vodka, here's my gin, like, please put them on your shelf. Uh, even though you have 20 others that are very similar.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, um, I, I think we're still seeing the business of craft distilling, come to terms with what's happening and, you know, both with the amount of time that's passed and with the size of, uh, you know, just the sheer numbers of craft facilities operating nowadays, there is going to be a settling, uh, settling out. You know, we, we are, we're already seeing some craft distilleries close just if they can't make the business work. And that's understandable. That's going to happen with, with everything. Uh, but I think what's going to be interesting is five years from now, looking at some of the survivors, how they figure it out, how to stick around. Either they've gotten big and they've figured out how to make the business work for them by making that craft vodka or craft gin, or they're making something really interesting, really distinctive. Uh, And that's that's exciting. That's really going to be exciting to see.
1: Yeah, you know, you and you're sort of talking about the the growth of the distilling industry in general, and, and I feel like you know the maybe the single most dominant uh, trend in the industry right now is just the the seemingly insatiable uh, thirst that people worldwide have for whiskey, and and that it went from being, you know, sort of uh, not exactly niche, but it was definitely not you know bourbon, scotch rye all those various you know single malts in general were sort of uh you know they were definitely not on people's minds uh when i first got into this industry and 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 now it's you know it's what people come into the restaurant every night and they're like what i I drink whiskey cocktails what do you have um you know that used to just be you know lighter spirits people didn't think about whiskey cocktails as much unless they were already a, a devotee so where do you see that going obviously you know the the major producing regions have really uh tried to ramp up production but it's <laughs> whiskey takes a while so it's really hard to respond to the to the sudden uh growth in demand with like oh yes here's you know here's uh twice as much 10 year aged whiskey as we made last year um that just isn't possible um do you do you see that growth continuing do you see it leveling out do you see it diminishing i, I don't know where, where do you stand on that
0: I, I think whiskey is just going to continue to grow because it, you know, it kind of goes hand in hand with what we we're talking about earlier with that rediscovery of flavor, rediscovery of taste, and whiskey has taste. It it has taste out the butt, you know, it taste it taste is all over the place with whiskey, um, and you know, w- with people. Really coming to appreciate bourbon, yeah. Bourbon has had to reevaluate its position. There's tons of bourbon. There's no shortage of bourbon, but there's a shortage of old, old bourbon. We bought a lot of that stuff up. Uh, I think you know the the distilleries that recognize this surge coming, we're going to start seeing some of that whiskey come out just in the next couple of years. It doesn't take that long, and and some of them really did kind of have their eye on the ball. And we're expecting one's coming along. Um, but I think this kind of diversity that we're going to be see uh, see coming from uh, craft distillers, that's going to help fill up some of the niche, that um, they are making some interesting things. And as they uh, get further along that learning curve, they're going to be, be making better and better quality things uh you're already seeing some of that stuff out in the market where they can kind of you know still in those holes and and pick up uh that niche uh plus you know we we've seen the rise of um uh third party uh third party bottlers uh, in the US. And that's, you know, it's something that we don't really talk about a lot in the spirits industry. Distillers talk about it a lot because, you know, it's it's their little thing, their their little sometimes uh, the thing that gets them through uh rainy day, sometimes they're cross the bear, but it's you know, buying spirits from another distillery, often a very large distillery, and bottling it under your own label. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the entire or a large part of the story of rye whiskey in recent years has been the story of third party bottlers from all of this rye whiskey coming from a single distillery in Indiana. And in appearing under uh, we counted it up recently, it was more than 40 different labels of rye and more than 100 different types of whiskey overall all came from the single distillery yeah. uh, in Indiana. So, you know, it, there, is, there is no whiskey shortage. There's a shortage of, of, of really old whiskey, but that's really kind of, you know, nothing new. Um, but I think people are always going to be looking for that and uh, kind of like looking for the next thing. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think one of the next things that we might be seeing um, is uh, growing interest in brandy, both mm-hmm. French brandy as well as American craft distilled brandy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that is, uh, I mean, as someone who loves Brandy to come back to sort of the, one of the things we talked about right from the outset, uh, I am excited by that. And I'm always, I'm always intrigued by, by the, the sort of huge gap, enthusiasm gap, I guess, between, for people between bourbon and other forms of whiskey and brandy which are different but they're not they're not so different i mean i think for most people if you like one you will probably like at least some of the other and obviously there's huge stylistic differences and um you know whether it's uh um, you know Armagnac versus cognac and even all the different sort of uh, quality levels and age levels of cognac and then comparing that to sort of what's being done here in the u.s uh of late but but it is to me a very natural transition and one that i'm surprised that few people seem to have made
0: yeah, you know, it's it's been the thing where brandy has still been uh, a little bit more of the unfamiliar. You know, it, it has a lot of the bottles have French names. I was gonna and, say there's uh, literally French you know, on the label. That's and the problem. things on the side that you, that you can't pronounce or you're afraid to pronounce in the bar because they might make you know say it wrong in front of your date. Uh, and you don't really know what the difference is between VS and VSOP and what's better. What should I get? Um, so it has been, you know, it has kind of uh, had that uh, aspect to it. But now uh, I think, you know, between French brands, So for example, uh, Cognac Ferrand, which has really understood what's going on with American cocktails and really recognized that that is an opportunity place and, and tried to make uh, their, their stuff accessible for cocktail bartenders, uh, as well as American distillers, you know, like uh, Copper and Kings in Kentucky. They make American brandy. Um, they're making some really interesting American brandy. Uh, And, you know, they're just getting started. But it's, you know, it's kind of giving that that kind of foundation, putting some exciting things out there that are delicious, that work great in cocktails and that make people excited. Yeah.
1: Uh, So speaking of things that make you excited, uh, what are uh, a few cocktails that you think uh, should be on people's minds that maybe aren't as popular as they should be? um, And why is that not the Moscow Mule?
0: Right. Well, you know, I mean, on, on, on the whiskey point, you know, one of my favorite cocktails that I always come back to uh, is called the Lion's Pill. And I think we may have talked about this after Speed Rack because yeah. it's become one of the drinks at Speed Rack that, that you can call out. That's been one of my favorite drinks for over 10 years. And, you know, it, it's, it's bourbon based. It's almost like a bourbon based tiki drink in some ways or a bourbon based daiquiri because it has that kind of, you know, flavor and character of the islands, but the spirits from Kentucky. Uh, you know, so bourbon, lime juice, uh, allspice liqueur, uh, and, and, and a little bit of simple syrup and bitters. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, whiskey and allspice and this just, just kind of wonderful kind of, kind of sour. Uh, that's a drink that I, I really wish would see a little bit more play. And then even though we're, we're fully in the era of the Negroni um, with, with you know, Negroni Week every year that Buy Magazine launched several years ago, and then we continue to sponsor and, and see thousands of bars now uh, participating from around the world. But even as the Negroni continues to, to have that kind of moment and have that kind of hold on our cocktail imagination, I would love to see the Americano. Uh, come back a little bit more. You know, it's it's, it's the Negroni's um, lower ABV cousin. Just, you know, drop the gin and put in a little bit of soda water and you're ready to roll. It's a beautiful, delightful, slightly bitter, very aromatic, uh, very refreshing kind of drink. I'd love to see the, the Americano come out a lot more.
1: Yeah, I think in general, it would be great to see um, a little bit more. F- it's not that there's not focus on it from a bartending uh, perspective, but I do think that like people don't, don't always think about cocktail a cocktail if they're going out to dinner as sort of that entry point to the rest of their dining experience whether that continues with cocktails or wine or beer or you know water or whatever but um I think that sort of the aperitif cocktail and and the sort of the physiological role that they play in kind of getting your taste buds ready to dine is something that I, I really would like to see I, I feel like it's got to be you know to some extent consumer driven and maybe maybe more driven not by cocktail not by craft cocktail bars because you know most of them are not doing a, a large food program and more restaurants that are really kind of emphasizing you know look if you want to have a really you know really memorable dining experience you know start with a drink like the americano it's as you said low abv so you're not going to get you know you're not going to be drunk before you get to your first glass of wine but you're also getting a flavor a set of flavors that you can't get out of you know the sort of default oh, i'll have a glass of white wine or whatever to start out because i don't really know what else to have
0: Right, right. And, and it gives, you know, by, by putting that on a restaurant menu, um, it gives uh, restaurants an opportunity to kind of get on that cocktail bandwagon. Because people are curious, you know, they want to go in and, and have something interesting and, you know, so something kind of opens their eyes. Uh, but again, you know, if they're just sitting down to dinner, they don't necessarily want to be walloped by uh, Manhattan right away. Um, so that kind of, you know, aperitif cocktail, lower EBD, stuff like the Americano, those are, are just tailor-made uh, for, for the restaurant environment.
1: All right. One one last question for you, Paul, because I I know uh, you've obviously got lots going on today. Um, But, uh, you know, there's the sort of the cities in America that we think of as sort of um, quintessentially part of the craft cocktail scene and and just great cocktail cities are all well known to everyone. And I don't need to list them here. But where have you been most surprised to find um, a really great cocktail culture that maybe you wouldn't have thought of before you went there or or one that's really kind of come on strong over the last uh, however many years?
0: Right. Well, this past summer, uh, I went through Tulsa, Oklahoma for a couple of days, and I was really just blown away by what I saw. It's not a huge cocktail culture. Tulsa isn't a huge city. uh, But they have, you know, some very solid bars, you know, bars like Valkyrie, which, you know, you walk in, and this bar could be in Chicago. It's it's on that kind of level of quality uh, and that kind of level of service. They really understand what they're doing. and They really get it. Um, and you know, just a block or so away is, uh, the, uh, the Saturn room, which is a tiki bar that would be, you know, right at home in San Francisco, uh, and, and serving some really excellent, uh, tiki drinks. Um, you know, you, you could have, you could have a lovely evening or two or a not even remember an evening or two <laughs> of wandering around Tulsa, Oklahoma, experiencing some of the cocktail bars that they have there and, and having some really good drinks. It was surprising and it was awesome.
1: Wonderful. Well, maybe we finally found the one thing that can unite all of America in these troubled times, which is we all like a good drink. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for your time. I uh, appreciate it and look forward to chatting with you soon.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Zach.
1: Thanks again to Paul Clark, executive editor of Imbibe Magazine, for joining me on Discorged. You can find his writings on newsstands at ImbibeMagazine.com or on Twitter at CocktailCron. That's C-H-R-O-N. As for me, I'm on the various social medias at z That's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. Thanks for listening to Disgourged and cheers.